Hi, I'm Jean Godfrey June, and this is Megan O'Neill. We're the beauty editors at Goop. And you're listening to Goop's podcast series, The Beauty Closet, where we talk about all things beauty clean, non toxic beauty, skincare, hair care, body care, self care, and the way we think about beauty both as individuals and in the wider culture. I could not be more in awe of our guest today. She's someone who is changing the world and making it better, better for women and so better for everyone. Dee Poku Spalding is an entrepreneur and woman's advocate. She's the founder and CEO of the We Suite. We stands for Women, Inspiration and Enterprise. And it's a company that helps women succeed in business, get funding, and gives them access to networks of successful other women, masterclasses, coaching, and more. Over the years, she's hosted amazing events that leaders like Ariana Huffington, Naomi Campbell, Melinda Gates, Iman, Alec Weck, Jill Biden, and more have attended. She also founded The Other Festival, a platform for female creators and Black Women Raise, an initiative that helps Black female founders get access to funding. Black women make up less than 1% of venture capital funding. The majority of VC funding goes to white men, and she's working to make a difference. Dee has been named one of Mary Claire's 50 Women Changing the World, a Harlem Fashion Week cultural icon, and one of True Africa's 100 Top Innovators. She was raised in Accra, Ghana, and London. She's a frequent and incredible speaker on women's career advancement. And I was looking at her Instagram last night, and I swear I learned more than I ever could have reading like The Economist. (laughs) She's amazing. She's brilliant and talks about what we can do to help women advance in business in the most engaging, amazing way. I met Dee when she invited me to speak on a panel, and the panel part was, of course, incredible and fun and thought-provoking, but it was the hanging at the event I found myself sitting between Mara Hoffman and Batsheva Hay, both of them are designers, amazing designers. You know, these amazing, wildly accomplished women were literally everywhere, packed into this WeWork auditorium, and it was just so joyful. Like, you think of panels and networking events as this sort of intense, worky, striving vibe, but D somehow does this alchemy where it's serious and inspiring and thought-provoking and even sort of intellectual and then it's light and playful and fun like I don't know how she does it she somehow gets that great energy that like a group of women say at a nail salon together or they're having drinks and they're laughing and then the smart thoughtful business side is there too yeah totally I met her at this wellnessy event she has at Parsley Health which is basically a practice of doctors that are trained in western medicine but also approach health holistically Um, Anyway, I was so inspired by how casual and easygoing she was and how much she laughed in spite of being this majorly accomplished woman who tackles serious issues and inequality. And it just made me think about how you can be this force and make real change, but also be completely yourself and laugh a lot and host fun panels, (laughs) you know? And I I waited around to introduce myself after, which is something I never do. I always just want to go home after those things because she was so insightful and she was also absolutely gorgeous. I love her hair and her bangs and her big smile. And I remember she was wearing jeans and something sort of casually blousy on top. She was just so chic. Like she always has this outfit that you're like, what is that? Yeah. But let's get to her because I just love this conversation. Dee, I'm so excited to see you. You're kind of the ultimate networker, but you don't have that networky personality at all. How did it start? Were you always really interested in people? Would people that who knew you like when you were growing up 
have predicted that you'd end up doing what you do? I mean, I guess I would say I've always been a people person. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that the evidence for that actually is if you observe my son, who is eight. Mm. But we go, to, we go out to like a playground, you know, by himself and he's an only child. By the end of this play session, he would have gathered like a little group of kids around him and he'd be sort of directing them and creating his own like mini community. And so I really sort of see that in him and realize that it's just sort of a part of our personality. So I've always liked to gather people. So, you know, if I meet a few people in a room, I'm the first to sort of email and say, let's have a group date, you know. So, you know, that aspect of my personality has always existed. I think when I became more of a grown-up, that really manifested in loving to sort of host dinners. So I'm a Brit. We love dinner parties in the UK. And I throw a mean dinner party. I, you know, I just kind of love to throw people from different parts of my life together in one room. And so it's never networky. It's just... I love being surrounded by people and I love throwing other people together. And so I've just made that my work. Oh, so good. I love that. <laughs> and you were raised in London and Accra, Ghana. How did your upbringing and being an immigrant shape you? And did your confidence evolve or was it always sort of there? I wouldn't say I'm confident. <laughs> I had a bout of imposter syndrome just earlier this week and had to phone a friend. But actually, I would say that sort of growing up, I like to be around people, but, you know, there's, there's definitely always, you know, been an insecurity that, that has existed alongside that. So my friendliness was just kind of the, the other side of a kind of dual personality where I was also quite sort of nervous and, and shy at the same time. But I would say as far as my upbringing, I was born in the UK. I lived in Ghana for a few years, living in Ghana. When I look back on it, it's not something that I recognize at the time. But mm -hmm. with hindsight, I realized that sort of growing up in an environment where everyone looked like me, where everyone was black, basically, and where people in positions of power all looked like me definitely grounded me and sort of gave me that sort of sense that I could be all I wanted to, that there were certainly no barriers to my success from that perspective anyway. Yeah. That's really anchored me throughout. And I think, you know, I, just to bring my kid back in, into it again, but, you know, he's definitely been through his own sort of like moments of confusion and so we really sort of took the decision to take him to Ghana and like have that be a part mm. of his life too so that he could see a world in which he is centered and not just a world where he feels othered so you know certainly that's what I got from Ghana how did the UK shape me you know I don't know the UK <laughs> is such a it's such a peculiar thing you know we have this whole like silly class system that still exists and I've seen that manifesting obviously in the, the sort of you know what was directed towards Meghan Markle you know but it just kind of permeates the whole society where everyone is obsessed with what your place is in society who your parents who, yeah who your parents are how you speak where you belong which I think is just an exhausting way to be and probably a big part of why I wanted to live in America and just when did you come to America 
I moved here in 2003. It was really meant to be a short-term thing. I was, you know, offered a job here. I thought that would be great. And, you know, I'd come for two or three years. And here I am 18 years later. Yeah. yeah. Wait, 2003 was 18 years ago. Oh, my God. So, yeah, ish. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Well, you started the WE Symposium in 2010 and now the WE Suite in 2021, this year. Can you just tell everyone what it is, how it works, how you got the idea in the first place? Sure. So just a quick rewind. I spent most of my career in the entertainment industry. I was on the marketing side. It was a very sort of glamorous on the outside job. I worked with on great movies with really interesting filmmakers and, and actors. And I'm a movie buff. I love movies so much. So again, I was definitely in, you know, in an environment where I was sort of doing something that really motivated and excited me. But on the other side of that was the industry, which is sort of sexist and sort of exclusive certainly not inclusive yeah racist in many ways racist and and just all the ists yeah and (laughs) (laughs) totally when i was living in la in my sort of last stint in the movie business and it's so insular there like it's just you know yeah you're it's like no one else no one else does anything else you go to the parties everyone talks about scripts you're navigating so much as a woman and as a black woman in, in any industry. Mm-hmm. And there was just no one to talk to, you know, I was experiencing things, whether it was sort of sexual harassment or an inability to, you know, achieve certain things that I wanted in my work. And there was no mentorship. Everyone, you had to sort of be careful about what you said, both within the company mm. and then with, you know, just in the general environment because everyone was in the industry. So you just never know, knew whether that could sort of come back and bite you uh, further yeah. along in your career. And so I just felt like, you know, and there was definitely no sisterhood. And I think that, you know, I've heard some very interesting theories around when you're put into certain environments as, as women, like just what that does to, to the way that you navigate relationships with one another. Because you know, there isn't room for all of you and, you know, that this sort of dynamic is created. Yeah, they're like, we need one woman. Oh, and if the, one woman of color, half, you know, if we could just do a half a person, that would be better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it takes the box and that was it. And so that really was what inspired that original, the, the We Symposium and, and everything I'm doing now was like, you know, why can't we create something that is a place where, women can be their full selves and where we can share business knowledge and and learnings with one another. I have to admit also that, you know, at the time that my partner at the time and I were quite obsessed with Ted, Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, didn't ever see a possibility of being invited or being able to afford it if we were ever invited. And so it was really kind of, it was, you know, the, the need to create something that was a space where women who'd achieved huge, huge success could be in the same room with women who were earlier on in their journey, that we could all sort of, you know, collectively be that support mechanism for one another. So that inspired that initial conference 
the symposium. Um, the symposium. And was that in LA or was that here? Like oh, that was here. Yeah, here to New York. Yeah, you moved to New York. Then, yeah. So that was here. And then those just started snowballing, or how did the company evolve? So the the way it started was that we had gone to this very fancy dinner called the Important Dinner for Women that was hosted by Ooh. Queen Rania and Intranui, mm. you know, CEO of Pepsi and Wendy Murdoch. And it brought together all these very, very amazing sort of well-known by first name, Hillary's, Oprah's. And, you know, June and I were somehow in this room just sort of wowed. But that really, you know, was kind of the impetus for the first conference was this is an amazing room of sort of powerful women who were talking about how to pay it forward that manifested in us sort of creating that event and we managed to get a few of the women you know who were at that event to speak so our very first conference was pretty impressive <laughs> if I do say so myself we kind of you know we got you know quite a few of them so that was like the, the sort of initial but it was again um, it was meant to be a, a one-off thing it wasn't meant to be oh. a business it was yeah and there was just such a great reaction and such a great turnout and, and such a great response to this idea of women empowering women that we saw that there was a there there and mm. that's how it evolved. And so I then sort of took it forward and it's, you know, become my work. And the suite, can you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah. So the we suite was really about just tackling the lack of diversity, both you know, gender and racial diversity at the top of mm. the chain across business, politics, society, and wanted to sort of really get to the heart of what was wrong. Like why weren't enough women achieving that level of success and why weren't they staying for long enough when they got there? I think that for me, it's about having a support mechanism around you of women who get it, you know, so that you are learning from each other's journeys and really sort of using your individual sort of experiences to help one another sort of grow and continue to progress. But it's also about, and you know, to make this a gender thing, really looking at how men do it, looking at the dudes and, you know, even using my husband as an example, when he meets someone new within five minutes, they've exchanged cards and are doing business. And mm. I think that as women generalizing, we have our own particular way, you know, this trust that needs to be built. You can't just like go in and ask a business favor like of, of another woman when you just met her, she would just think that was, you know. Yeah. Really you don't know me yeah yeah you don't know me that's really bad form so you have to kind of have had a couple of coffees and like you just kind of work up to the thing yeah, yeah. um and you know we just lose so much time i and just don't do that I, I mean i see it all the time they don't necessarily need to build that same sort of trust like for women it really matters um yeah. you know and I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm just saying that you know the pace of change is slow and we need to just sort of get there faster. And for me, it's about how are we doing business together and leveraging all of our sort of business connections and our experience to help all women succeed. And so for me, it's about like 
referrals and writing checks and introductions and sharing tactics and like how are we doing that at a faster pace and that's really you know the kind of community that I wanted to create that was a little bit different from anything else that was out there where community was more about support this is more about like let's do business like how are we driving wealth to each other like let's really think about it through a tactical transactional lens so that's really like the differentiator, you know, in, in what the We Suite is. I love that. I love that layer of it because I think so much women's empowerment can fall into just like, we're great. And it doesn't move from there. Yeah. And also we're already in, like, what's empowerment? Like we have it. Like, yeah. You know, women, <laughs> makeup, we're, we know we are half the population. We are half the workforce. We make 80% of purchasing decisions like we have so much of that already but it's really about how we're leveraging that um yeah. to, you know to further ourselves like that's the piece that's missing sort of going back your hollywood experience in the context of beauty you're talking about how it's this one industry town but also it's that our culture at large is bad enough but hollywood you know is sort of the worst in terms of beauty standards and how does anyone navigate being female and feeling even halfway decent about themselves in that environment how did you navigate it i didn't <laughs> <laughs> you know i think that i didn't date much when i was in la and i feel like every guy in la thinks he can date a model or an actress oh, right like oh, every, yeah, definitely every yeah. shabby regular guy yeah. is like you know i can be with angelina jolie and they really believe it and so you know there's definitely that that exists and then there are just those sort of you know, Hollywood standards that require everyone to look a certain way and it really manifests in what we see on screen. You know, in contrast in the UK, like if you look at a typical British soap opera, it's mm -hmm. down and dirty. Like it's <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like we don't do, yeah. Gloss, like it's like real life, real Like these are stuff. people, yeah. <laughs> these are people, you know, who look like you and me. Whereas, you know, what we like to portray, you know, on the big screen here in America is everything is sort of, you know, glossed over right. and pretty yeah. and that's just not real. But, and so Hollywood as a whole, you know, sort of lives by those standards. I've seen a big change in the last 10 years. I think that mm. we're seeing a bit more of women who are older. We're seeing a tiny bit more sort of body diversity, not as much yeah. as would, like a little bit, a lot more racial diversity, especially in television. So mm -hmm. it's come along, but, you know, certainly in, in my time there, you know, there was one look and it was kind of skinny blonde and I'm neither. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll see there. <laughs> <laughs> What, what were your attitudes about beauty growing up? Was there an emphasis on physical beauty in your house and with your friends? You know, I'll tell you one thing which I hadn't talked about in relation to Ghana and growing up in Ghana, growing up African, is colorism has never really affected me in the way that it has many other people. I'm very much aware of it. And there is, you know, there is that element in, Af in Africa as well where you know, people have used bleaching creams, but yeah. certainly like, you know, in my environment, you know, I felt like my skin color and shade 
was and is beautiful. Like I've never felt negatively towards like being dark skin. Like I love, I love my skin color and I'm, I'm so happy I do. And why shouldn't yeah. I? But, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, I think that that, I can't remember the question now, what I was answering. Oh, sort of oh. like whether it was. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Was there an emphasis on physical beauty growing up? Yeah, so I would say in, not in my household. It was for my family, it was all about brains. I don't think I was ever told I was pretty or, or anything like that, which may have, you know, manifested in other ways. But Same so, here. <laughs> totally relate. <laughs> but, you know, certainly my parents as immigrants to the UK put a big emphasis on education, that we had to be the best, that we had to get the best grades, you know, we had to work harder, you know, but those were the sort of values that they instilled in us and that, you know, I still carry with me to this day. Like I work harder than anybody I know. Like I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, that we can attest to. <laughs> work a be to the extreme. I never take anything for granted. And what about with your friends? What was the vibe there? Let's just talk about sort of being a teenager, you know, like even, so on the one hand, like I didn't see my skin color or shade as like less than beautiful, but I didn't necessarily think I was beautiful. So it's two different, mm -hmm. two different things, totally. things warring with each other. And so, you know, I had a sort of, you know, a group of friends. There was one girl in particular who was definitely the prettiest. She was also like the lighter skinned and definitely attracted you know, all of the male attention. So that was definitely something I was aware of sort of objectively and intellectually that there was a certain look that was more appealing to men, but I didn't necessarily want to be it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was sort of grounded and insecure and, and aware. I love the way beauty, like as in like treatments, like telling your friend about a great lip color or an amazing cream brings women together. You know, I remember that first time I met you at that symposium at a WeWork that you put together. Your gatherings always have that spirit of women recommending something to each other. It's like helping each other, not because it's the right thing to do necessarily, but because we have this great way to bond and it feels fun and elevated. Like how do you bring that out in gatherings, that joie de vivre that women kind of, I think, naturally bring out in each other in a particular circumstance? Well, I think you nailed it. We have to bring that out in the environments we create, right? I talked about sort of throwing dinner parties and the word that people always use to describe a dinner they come to or, or maybe to describe me is warmth, that there is that sort of genuine sense of really liking everybody, really being interested in everybody, wanting to hear what they have to say. And I think that if you can, that really applies in any environment you create. If you make people feel great and good about themselves, then it really sort of permeates the whole gathering and you just end up with that really wonderful feeling. And then you get to that place where you start to sort of share all our best selves when we feel great about ourselves, right? And so, you know, when you're feeling off or insecure, you know, it's not the best time to bring out the best in you or for you to sort of want to share your tips. But when you feel sort of grounded in who you are and you feel like you're around people who are your people and you feel connected yeah. to them, you know, that's, you know, when you tend to share. And so that's really what I do. I mean, not consciously, really. Mm -hmm. it's just sort of the way it is, but it's in um, the air. Like it, yeah, I always yeah. feel it. Yeah. It's in the end. It's one of those things where I'm really trying to figure out 
as we grow, as the We Suite grows, as my communities grow, like there's a lot of pressure on me to be and do so many things. And so what I'm really sort of grappling with right now is like, how do I pass the baton over to somebody else? And like, how can somebody else deputize for me? And in trying to do that, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate what it is that I do as far as, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's really yeah. hard to sort of put that down on paper. Like, how do you articulate everything you do? Yeah, crazy. Yeah. You know, how you build community. Absolutely. There's a sort of special source that... You need a casting director. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it's not like something that you, you know, we all have it. Yeah. It's just, just how, like, to how to bring it out. Bring it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, this, this is going back a bit to what you were saying about observing your husband and how men generally exchange cards and women do something different. But what about mentorship? The Times reported that after Me Too, men are mentoring women at work even less. Is mentoring different between women? And how do we, how do we encourage it? And how important is it? I mean, it's so incredibly important, you know, it was the lack of mentorship that I felt in my film career that, you know, really sort of affected my ability to just be and fully confident in, in what I was doing. I think it's just so valuable to be able to speak to someone who has been through similar things before and can share it. Like, why should we make the same mistakes over and over and over when someone else has kind of paved the way and can really, you know, help you get to the next level. And so I think mentorship is important. I think sponsorship is even more important. I think that, you know, women get a lot of mentorship actually because we do that for each other. We are supportive of each other. I don't know that we get enough sponsorship and the sponsorship piece, which is where someone is advocating for you in the room and saying, no, you should, Megan should be head of blah. Or do you know what I mean? Like someone who is advocating for you to get to that next level, to get paid more or, you know, to be hired in whatever capacity, that stuff, which is again, what we're trying to, you know, create in the We Suite, the actionable piece, so not just the advice right. that propels you forward. Like that's the piece that I would love to see more of and, um, and that sort of doesn't um, exist enough. And I actually think that men should be sponsoring like crazy. Like that's what you know, that's what they could do. That's what they could do. If like, you look at, you know, if you look at sort of typical sort of company and you look at this, the sort of top player, which is mostly male, the yeah. only way we're going to pull more women up is by men sponsoring those women and saying, you know, she's the one, she should get the CMO role, you know, or whatever it is that's available, as opposed to just giving advice. It's very sad to, to hear that Me Too sort of, you know, affected men and their want to sort of support the next generation of women. It's just crazy, frankly, yeah. quite silly. It's like you know, if you if you are a man, you know, who operates with sort of integrity and honesty, why should you have any fear about being in a room with another woman? Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Say the same thing about men. I mean, just, anyone could be in a room, and there could be a predator and a whatever. So, like, if you're not one, you don't have to worry. If you're not one, you don't have to worry. <laughs> you know, so there's definitely that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we can get a bit sort of obsessed with finding the perfect mentor and that a mentor is the be all and end all. And if we don't have one, we'll never make it. 
mentorship is all around you. Mentorship is in the friends around you. And I've always had that peer mentorship. So I think that you can build you know, a really great sort of circle of mentors. It can be just as valuable to you as having the sort of perfect. That is so true. I had a phase when I was dating and I was dating three people. And I remember my therapist was like, together, they make a great boyfriend. It's kind of a good, it, it totally works. And it's, that's really true in business, I think, of like, you know, yeah, this person, are they going to stand up and, and fight for you, like you were saying? Or maybe they'll give you some great advice and then you get the other person that will do the talking, you know? <laughs> so that's yeah. I, such a good point. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. It's like how we have different friends for different needs. It's like yeah, kind of- exactly. Exactly. And I think if you can get to a place where the friends in your life are also part of your mentorship circle, where you are also supporting one another in your careers, then you are golden. That's a good Because yeah. that's really, you know, what you want to strive yeah. for. And I've mostly built that dynamic with my friends. Like they're not really surprised to see me sending an email about something work-related and they can say no and like of course yeah. it's really no big deal and sometimes you know you might not want to make that introduction because you don't feel comfortable or whatever yeah. it is and that's fine too but I think you, you should just still have that dynamic between you where that is possible and that you don't take offense right because you've been asked that's that very question. Good Yeah, that was an interesting one. So I had hosted one of my conferences and we had a panel around women in tech and there were three women on the panel, one black woman, two white women, you know, three very sort of accomplished founders in the tech space, all of whom you would know, like they've all sort of have huge careers. So at the end of the panel, I spoke to my girlfriend, you know, the the black girl, and I said, how was it? That, That was, you know, such an amazing conversation. And She said, you know, I actually felt a little bit off. And I said, why? What happened? She said, well, you know, I'm being sort of held up as this sort of incredible success story because I've raised $2 million and, you know, that's considered a big deal for a black female founder. Meanwhile, I'm sitting on a panel with two other women, you know, where I feel like my credentials are just as strong. I've had, you know, the same sort of level of education. I'm just as, you know, good of an innovator. And they've raised... $400 $400 million compared to my two, right? And she was like, you know, like, it's ridiculous. And I'm just, you know, fed up of it. And, you know, and it was like my first time really having that conversation with fellow black founder about that specific issue and just really hearing it like that. Because I think to some people raising $2 million sounds like, like a lot, <laughs> a lot. And, yeah. and it is a lot. And, yeah. you know, and it's, you know, we're still coming from a, a relatively privileged place in saying that but in comparison and if you are trying to build a business that competes on the same level 400 as, million <laughs> as those exactly as you know then then it really isn't anything and you know and it's impossible for black founders to ipo you know or become the next facebook you know if they don't have that same sort of level of support and injection of cash it really is a big issue on so many levels i think that it's important Black founders are able to create these businesses. Like so many of my friends, I'm not saying that's all you can do, but they create businesses that really give back to our communities in some way. Obviously, they are hiring mm. other yeah. black people and people of color. They're building businesses that make sense. Otherwise, you, all you're getting are businesses that speak to one specific demographic. And that's 
wrong. It's a big issue. And I think that also, so with Black Women Raised, the idea is that, similarly to the WeSuite really, it's about bringing together Black founders who um, have raised already, sort of are already in the system, you know, have managed to kind of raise some funding and to be that support system for one another, but also to help them build the connections and relationships they need to really grow and to, you know, become the next Facebooks and, and, and Bumble and, and whatever else. And that all comes down to community. The reason Black founders are unable to raise at the same levels is because of, you know, lack of access. It's because of many things, but, many, yeah. you know, but one of the key ones is, you know, is access um, to networks. And, you know, if you are a white dude and your uncle knows somebody or... Yeah, your like, friend is like, oh, he invested yeah. in this thing. Hey, exactly. Yeah, I love yeah. that idea. He's two, $2 million. Let's get um, behind him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. There's less you have to prove in the room. There's just a sort of a shorthand that allows you to get there faster. There are re relationships and networks that you have at your disposal that allow people to have that sort of faith in you because when you're writing big checks, it's also about sort of trust and faith. Trust, like, yeah. Why do I want to give this person my money? So when you're sitting in a room with someone who, you know, kind of feels like a younger version of you, like, I, I get this guy, like, you know, he's mm -hmm. like, yeah. Like I could have done that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's a comfort level. And so, you know, it's different when you are a black woman sitting in those same rooms where you don't have that sort of instant rapport in the same way. And also you don't look like what they perceive success totally. in this founder community to look like. So, so you have like, like gear for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, they think it's riskier. Like, oh, it might be hard for her. Yeah, it might be hard for her. So it's really about, you know, network building, having those relationships so that, you know, you've got people who, again, speaking to the sponsorship, who will vouch for you. When we hosted our first Black Women Raise event, we had Charles Tressida, who has a, a venture fund called Precursor, and he talked about having sat in rooms and heard other investors, you know, white male investors talk about, you know, she's great. And, you know, the business is great. I just can't get there. And mm -hmm. then having someone vouch for her was the lever that, you know, so yeah, it was having, so important. Exactly. Having someone else who they trusted say, no, 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 we should do it. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, was the switch. You talk about the idea of authenticity when you're a woman of color and how confusing it can be to navigate your behavior and how you present yourself professionally with things like implicit bias and, you know, racism working against you. What's your advice for staying true to ourselves in this toxic soup we're all swimming around in? <laughs> I mean, it's a process, right? It's a process. The first thing that you have to do, especially if you are just coming up in your career, is to observe and listen. You need to sort of understand the rooms you're in, the dynamics, the people around you. I think that EQ is, is like su such an important sort of skill to develop to just allow you to sort of move through the world and get the best out of people to sort of serve, you know, whatever it is you, you want to achieve. So I wouldn't necessarily say like walk into a room saying, hey, you know, this is me. 
I would say that to anybody, wherever they're from, whatever they look like, is that every environment and every company has a culture. And so I think it's important to just be aware of what that is and how you can navigate within it. You have to sort of observe and listen, ask questions, like really figure out like what is this environment about and how can I achieve within it? It takes a while to just to figure that out. And then that's when you can really sort of start to bring your full self into that environment whilst being aware of what works and what doesn't. So it's not, you know, you want to be true to yourself always, but you have to understand that working at Condé Nast is going to be different to working at Airbnb and it's going to be different to working at Goop, right? I imagine at Goop, you're talking about vaginas and it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, We're like the vibrators out of stock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're not going to do that at Bank of America. So you need to sort of... <laughs> that is great life advice. Yeah, that is really true. Yeah. You're friends with our friend, the fashion designer, Norma Kamali, and she's 75, still owns and runs her company, met her soulmate at 65. And now she's got her new book out about aging with power. How powerful, of course, is ageism for women and then women of color? Norma and I had a lunch last year and she was talking about, you know, aging and ageism. And she said to me, I want to sort of be more at the forefront of talking about this issue. Like, I think it's ridiculous that, you know, women are sort of so afraid of age. Like I'm living, you know, my best life. And she said, you know, I'm 75 or how old she was when, yeah. we, when we had that lunch but like even the saying like the saying it out loud there was still like a slight pause that mm-hmm. you know she sort of acknowledged in herself like it's so indoctrinated in us that even when you are like the living embodiment of like you know aging is beautiful there's still mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah. I just remember thinking that was you know really interesting but we obviously we need women like her and there are other women like Cindy Gallup who are out there really sort of being you know honest and also like having the best time and like hot boyfriends and <laughs> well it's like what you said about growing up in Ghana when you see other people like we are social animals when we see other people doing something we're like oh okay I'll do that <laughs> you know? exactly. and I feel that way about myself like it's you know people modeling accepting something or not accepting something Teaching. You know what's interesting, actually, it's you bringing up Ghana is, you know, in Ghana, we really respect and value age, right? Mm. So it's a very different thing, or not just in Ghana, you know, in Africa, we like look up to our elders, like we really defer to our elders, like, we, you know, like, it's just something that is really like, intrinsic in our society, to see people get older and be sort of discarded when actually like they have so much to give and to share is, you know, is actually kind of is very short-sighted. There are friends, you know, who are sort of a little bit older, you know, in their sort of fifties who have lost jobs recently and, you know, very much sort of due to ageism and this idea that we have to sort of bring in the new and fresh, and the cheap. Yes, the <laughs> new, you know, and obviously we need both. Like it's important to have those fresh ideas and people who are sort of, in touch with you know whatever's just coming up but you also really need that experience and the sort of management skills as well like I think that it's been to the detriment of many young companies that age hasn't been valued as much because in terms of like managing a team and just knowing how to sort of bring out the best in the people around you like that's that's a learned skill 
Definitely. Yeah. And like, and the EQ that you were talking about, I mean, that develops definitely more, you know, if you think of most 20 year olds, you know, yeah. <laughs> barreling into a boardroom, they're, they're, they've got a little to learn usually. But I mean, yes, in a totally self-serving way, like we're all going to get old. So we may as well make it acceptable and great and not disregard old people. Like we're, we're all going to get there if we're lucky. We are all going to get there. And actually, you know, that the older generation, then their people are living longer and longer. So I think that the balance and people have, ha are having, conversely, having less children. So I think as far as like the balance of society, you know, is to our detriment, we ignore anyone over a certain age. And, and also that we aren't sort of obsessed with marketing all products to millennials as if, you know, there isn't a huge demographic of people with high disposable income who exist. Yeah. Yeah, Goop, definitely a big example of that, although we have our millennial fans for sure. And, mm -hmm. and it's, we, we definitely speak to, to every age of woman as much as we can. What, what's your philosophy around aging more in terms of beauty? Like your skin is amazing. amazing. I, when I first met you at the Parsley event, I noted that. I was like, oh my God, she's so glowing and smooth. But <laughs> yeah, how do you take care of your skin? Okay, I was dreading this part. <laughs> I am no beauty expert. We just want to know, it's better that you're not a beauty, if your skin yes. looks like that and yes. you're not a beauty expert, we want to know the trick. Yes. Okay, so if it doesn't sound trite, I definitely believe that it starts on the inside. I am very healthy. I don't drink coffee. I don't eat junk food. Every morning I have like, you know, lemon juice and, and water. You know, I drink... Mm. Um, herbal teas and I eat lots of fruit and vegetable like all those things yeah I enjoy like that's sort of my lifestyle and I, I really enjoy it I actually you know this morning I had this smoothie that I learned from Gwyneth which is my favorite smoothie of all time which is basically Good. sort of blueberries and almond paste and oh I've had this and stuff but instead of banana you put frozen cauliflower Ooh. and it still has that creaminess Oh, really? So good. Bananas be gone, like oh. beyond. So, so I definitely, you know, I live a lifestyle that is healthy, healthy. and my beauty routine is fairly minimal. I'm trying to use clean products. So I use Tata Harper, which I really like, and, you know, I really like her. And she's I have amazing. this great, she's amazing. And I have a, this serum from Vintner's Daughter. That oh, the best. I really like I it's really it. really great and then a moisturizer from Nikeo oh we love uh, her yeah these are um, all people we've had on the podcast Everything oh nice <laughs> okay so I don't really vary my beauty routine much you know I kind of wash my face and slap on some serum and moisturizer I don't really wear makeup I mean I wear lipstick and mascara but I don't really wear like foundation unless I have to you know do a shoot yeah, yeah exactly so i just think that you know the less you're clogging up your skin the better ultimately sure what about hair are you into styling it or how do you look like this i've had the same hairdo forever truthfully my husband made me have short hair he's like you know have your hair out and like have it short and you know and i did it him and I'm now back to this which, <laughs> it makes me happier so I feel I think with me in general you know, I'm a Virgo and I am a creature of habit and if I find 
something I like, I will do it forever. I will go to the same restaurant and order the same meal for the rest of my life happily. Uh I think that for me, the worst thing, and when my skin erupts or anything like that, is usually when my routine is off. Mm. Actually, like the big, the, the, the sort of early months of COVID, everything was off. Oh. And I felt that sort of manifesting my skin and body. Or if I travel on the, you know, so those are the times when I see, you know, a difference in my skin or, you know, in my hair, or whatever. But as long as I have my routine, I am good. Do you have any favorite sort of like wellnessy, goopy practices? Let's see. Well, I love the, the you know, I love having cold, the cold shower, like the, you know, <gasps> the Wim Hof. Yes. Like when I, wa- I watched, yes. Megan's episode of the Netflix, the goop. Yeah. It's so yes. good. <laughs> I would do that. And I, I, like, I love that. I mean, it's, like you have to sort of brace yourself, but like once you've done it, it's like the best tingly, amazing. It um, works. It really yeah, works. It's great. Yeah, I, so I, I love the cold, the cold shot of you know of water. I mean, yeah, you know, I just like to walk a lot. It's not very wild, but you know, I'm not a big exerciser, so I'm <laughs> you know I'm doing some you know exercise videos. But in general, I'm not really sort of big on workout classes. But I walk everywhere. I will walk. I'm in Brooklyn right now. I would happily walk uptown. I you know walk upstairs. Just Instead of taking elevator like those are the things that I like to do so it's just really about like how can I build things into my life that don't require me to have to sort of think and make a special <laughs> right well let's let's talk about the Marshall plan for a second because it's amazing so the Marshall plan for mom for moms was just taken up by Congress congratulations we know you advocated Huge. for it and signed it and it calls on the Biden administration to pay mothers 2400 a month within its first 100 days and the idea is that mothers should be compensated because they're essential workers why would getting this passed be such a big step in the right direction because when you look statistically at what's happening like if you look at the December job figures. I don't have them right next to me, but it was yeah. something like 8.3% of women, of women were unemployed. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, 6% of women were unemployed. 8.3% of black women were unemployed. This is disproportionately falling on mothers, mm-hmm. on women of color, on those who are sort of essential workers, i.e. they're working in sort of hospitality or they're caregivers. Like that is, you know, this is, this pandemic is decimating lives and careers and it's disproportionately affecting women and you know the specific women i was talking about it's a crisis that's why she called it a marshall plan like we need an emergency plan that can support mothers right now because what's happening is that you know we are the ones who are giving up jobs like we are you know walking away from the workforce to be home and look after our children those who Mm -hmm. are essential workers are unable to you know look after the kids and homeschool and go out to work we're making all of these sacrifices at all levels women who had sort of big from women who have big corporate jobs who you know have had to leave the workforce to be there for their families to you know women who sort of caregivers or you know sort of support you know serving society in other ways and so we really just have to think about you know how our society is anchored there was a great quote that i read that said 
the rest of the world has social safety net and America has women. Like we are the ones <laughs> who are sort of propping up our society right now, you know, and it's all, we've almost kind of gone back to a dark age where like our men are going to work while we are, you know, are. there sort of ensuring that everything is kept together. And it really, the reason it has to be, there are, there are bigger issues, you know, at stake where we really need to think about the sort of gender dynamics and obviously having men be sort of an equal part of supporting in their homes. And, you know, those things are important. We need to have family leave. We need to have affordable childcare. Like those are all things that need to happen and that, you know, so many of us have been advocating for for so long. But I think that, you know, in this very moment where women have lost jobs and have no childcare, like they need checks they need money to survive they need money to get support to help see them through this and so that's really you know what we're advocating for you've talked about raising your son as a feminist how do we do that (laughs) (laughs) yes well you know it's so important that you cannot you have to walk the talk right so it's it on the one hand it's important to sort of say these things out loud and advocate for them in what on whatever platform you have but we also have to think about the generation we're raising and instilling those values in them so if, it'll be like shame on me if whoever is lucky enough to be my son's partner has to inherit the same bs as you know other women <laughs> before me so it's it's little things it's things like if he spills something, he drops something on the floor, he has to clean it up. I mean, he, you know, he's mm-hmm. eight, he doesn't do it very well, but it's just the act of doing it, knowing that it's his responsibility. He spilled the drink, he needs to clean it. You know, he needs to yeah. sweep up. Yeah. He needs to tidy his room, he needs to make his bed, you know, to be a sort of an equal partner. Person. Um, yeah. To be a fully rounded person. And then there are sort of conversations like where he might say something about girls mm-hmm. not being as strong or girls only like blah so I don't want to play with them you know and I have to sort of pull him up on everything every time and say well no that's not true because what about this girl or like why do you say that or like have you tried saying asking if they want to play with your trucks because you might be surprised and just like mm-hmm. just chipping away at you know it's almost like you have to keep counterbalancing what society is telling him a boy is and a girl is yeah and you have to keep doing it every single time it's one it's about like what society is telling him about girls but also what society is telling him about himself and whether it's okay to show emotion and whether it's okay to cry or whether it's okay to like the color pink or like <laughs> all of those things I've had to grapple with with him because you know he used to love pink and you know eventually one too many people told him it was a girly color and now he just it's like oh won't have it so you know like it's i I hope hopefully he will so it's just really just having those conversations and trying to model all those things and being a woman who works and telling him i have to go out to work and him just seeing that and understanding so it's a process. <laughs> I'm pregnant D and having a son in like six Exciting. weeks. Oh my yeah, gosh. Can you tell us what like, she's wow. she No, like, no, nothing. <laughs> it's now there, but I'm so excited. But I'm also, I'm thinking about how he'll grow up to be a black man subject to all the hate and violence and fear that black men get in America. 
How do you talk about the complexities of race with your son? Big question, I know. It's a question that, you know, obviously every black mother grapples with every day, every time there is a new story where another black man has been sort of killed or beaten, we immediately look at our sons and have to sort of keep reflecting on the sort of monumental job in front of us and like, how do we keep them safe? I think for me, there's, there's a balance, you know, the older he gets, the, the more he begins to sort of understand the world we live in and the, the unfairness of the world that we live in. What I'm really trying to do is like create that balance where, you know, I was raised to believe I could be and do anything, that I had to apply myself and I had to work hard and get an education and all of those things. But I was definitely, you know, raised to believe that the world was my oyster and I could sort of go after what I wanted. And I definitely, you know, I have that in me and it allows me to, to pursue the things I want. And I want him to have that. I want him to to be fearless and I want him to be a risk taker but I also have to arm him so that he you know is also going out into the world fully aware it's really sort of you know it's it's bit by bit there are you know books he has lots and lots of interesting books he loves to read like he's an avid reader so it's actually when I'm struggling I just find a book you're like (laughs) here (laughs) yeah here's a book (laughs) that can do it better than me and so you know he's you know he's reading his books and, and, and sort of understanding what's come before, what people have struggled through. He understands who our heroes are, you know, Martin Luther King. And, you know, he loves Harriet Tubman, thinks she's like super cool. And so, you know, he understands what has come. I don't think he has fully grasped, you know, what is to come or what he will encounter. He, you know, he has some understanding and we're just kind of ensuring that, He's not kind of completely ignorant, but at the same time, ensuring that he also feels like, you know, I want to be an inventor and I'm going to be one and nothing's going to hold me back either. As a mother, we, you know, we all just kind of figure it out as we go along and, you know, no one can ever sit in judgment of another mother and the way that she chooses to do it. The Harriet Tubman, I was just reading, I think in the New Yorker, there's a story about her. There's this whole sort of what you were talking about, about advocating for someone. She, I'm going to forget all the players because I'm the worst, but she was networking with all these women in Washington that helped her like set everything up. And like, it was, they enjoyed being together. It was sort of like your gatherings where it's like, we're having fun together and we want you to succeed <laughs> at the most basic level, but it's yeah. cool. I have to read that. Yeah. I have to read that too. And you know, as, yeah, I think that if you can have that in your life, you know, you're in the sort of very best situation you could put yourself in, especially now, like it's impossible to navigate this time alone. I love asking for advice and input and I probably sort of overdo it. I really, you know, thrive in good community and in people, having people who I trust around me, giving me insight. Uh, oh, so good. Yeah. I feel like that's the best sentiment to end on. We all just need to try to be more of a community for each other. This was so fantastic. I, I feel like we got so many inspirational words and then there's, actionable things and you've given us so much to think about i'm inspired yeah (laughs) thank you thank you thanks for having me on this was really fun we had so much fun thank you yeah that was 
so great. I mean, she's always great as we discussed. You know, she has this infectious quality. Yeah. I love what she said about seeing herself as she was growing up in Ghana and seeing people in power at every level looking uh, like her. Yeah. And how important that is. I mean, it's important vis-a-vis you know, -vis racism. It's important vis-a-vis -vis sexism. It's being able to see that someone can do something. Totally. It applies to everything. Age, you know, like. Yeah, like the normal Kamali, you know. Kamali, yeah, like to see a 70, a bunch of 75-year-olds who are just living their life, still doing amazing things, doing splits in her yeah. case. Like yeah, that. Just things. Putting it out there. It, it's funny because having, you're about to have a baby and I remember my best friend had a baby before months before I had a baby. And so she was kind of like, yeah, you can breastfeed. Look, you can do it. Look at me, you know, because in the beginning, it's really hard. And I remember I we had this friend who she was old. I was probably like 35 and she was 40 and she's an exceptionally gorgeous person. And she was like, she was like, 40 is nothing. Look at me. You know, and at the time when you're like 34 or whatever, you're like 40 is like the worst, right. <laughs> you know, now I look back at it and I'm like, oh, 40 is so deluxe. I love that that idea of that if you see somebody doing something and they look like you and you can relate to them somehow, it changes your trajectory. It's so important. Like, like even just, you know, kids who grow up and their first memory of a president is Obama or mm -hmm. Kamala. It's like that is normalized for them now. Yeah. And that, that changes their whole perspective. It's like in them or like you yeah. can be black and successful. Like she just grew up seeing that. That is so huge. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I also loved what she had to say about community and, and the thing about mentorship where that you don't necessarily have to have one person who's going to be your like end all end all. Like we kind of think of it as almost like, oh, it's like marriage, you know, you find the one. And yeah. I, for some reason, I never thought I, I never thought of having a mentor or like, I just, it didn't occur to you me. Have like, like you get it from different places. Which is yeah. so much more realistic than that mentor, quote unquote, person. Yeah. Like, who has that? When I lost my job at Lucky, I remember these friends of mine, you know them all, Carrie Diamond, oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Jane Larkworthy, and Danielle Pergamon. And they all took me out to dinner and we like we had drinks and they were just like, this sucks. And they're like, what should Jean do next? Oh, that's you know, so and we just having that space and that conversation to talk about it. And at one point I think they were like, what about goop? You know, I didn't, goop came to me in a different way, but it definitely came up. And, you know, Carrie was that same person who like, when I got a divorce, she was a work friend. When I got a divorce, she came to my office with like Starbucks uh, after I'd been divorced for about a year and was like, we're going to make your dating profile. Like, <laughs> you know, and so, yeah. So like, you know, when you talk about mentors, they aren't all like, yeah, what you're kind of expecting. Yeah. I love that. I feel like we, we we've had such a different experience working in these industries where you know magazines and publishing where it's women like i've never yeah. worked with there's the rare man yeah like, it's a rare, yeah. like one you know <laughs> it's like, so it's there's never that the male toxicity and the yeah we've never dealt with it at work i've had friends in different industries where they're like you know oh these guys are always hitting on me and like it's awful and you know i'm gonna lose my job and like you know i have not experienced that even though you know in magazines certainly corporate magazines you know there was the you know at condé nast there was the 11th floor and 
there yeah. was like two women up there. But the power certainly when when we were there was was in male hands and I think somewhat to its detriment. But certainly at Goop it's very different. You know, like they're like, hey, we're the guys. There are guys at Goop, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're overpowered. And you see, you know, we, we, we do. I mean, I remember early days of Goop, like, you know, our stand up would, would be like this moment where everybody was standing around holding each other's babies and talking about what they were doing that work. You know, it's always been really just this wonderful place in terms of just accepting that like women's lives include Include. more responsibilities than men. And so, you know, once again, it's sort of like, I, I can do this so you can do this. Yeah. Yeah. I I was talking on the phone with my friend a few days ago who, or a few months ago who was pregnant and she has a a boss who's a man. And she said he, he was asking her if anything was wrong. She seemed tired. And, And like, you know, she was like, I told him I was pregnant. Like, a month ago like what does he think is wrong you know like yeah, and it, yeah it's crazy that she had to like remind him oh my god i have a i have a friend in hollywood that that literally got kicked off a movie because the male star who was sort of in control found out she was pregnant even though it wasn't going to show or anything he sort of wanted a, a receptive female in his cast like as it was a little while ago but not that long ago and it when you have kids Um, yeah because it's like there's you know just culturally it's like you know oh the mom's carrying the baby Uh uh-huh like what you know of course she's feeding the baby great if if the husband is doing it's like oh my god how cute he's so great you know like that's you know it's it's, it's the exception you know it's 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 like oh look what he's doing today you know, <laughs> so even my mom, who's, you know, like woke in many ways, yeah. see a man like pushing a stroller and be like, well, you look at that. Yeah. And granted, like she didn't have a husband. So it, I'll give her some slack, but it's just, yeah, he's just being a dad. Like he's supposed to be. It's like, oh my God, how unusual. It's like seeing <laughs> a whale. <laughs> That's um, so true. Oh, that, yeah. It it does. There is there are ways where the world is still the fifties at best. <laughs> so, I'm like I'm so worked up about that. I could talk about that forever, but I won't. <laughs> oh well. Well, the thing about Dee is that she she's showing us a way forward. Yeah, and that it's so inspiring. And I imagine what it you know certainly what it feels like to go to one of her events. Being from our industry, even where we're used to women being in power, it's still this great feeling. And like she said, coming from like Citibank or something, you know, yeah. like a law firm, you know. So, and maybe the, you know, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she, yeah. Was, she was incredible. She was amazing. She just really made my day. So, on the site, I do a column called Megan Tries It, and you do one called Ask Jean. And we get a whole bunch of beauty questions. And we're going to answer them all here, right now. (laughs) Yes. So should we get into today's Ask Me Anythings? Or maybe Ask Us Anything? Yes. And if anyone's listening and has a question they want us to answer here, just send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. It could be about self-tanner, crow's feet, dry shampoo, parabens, our favorite bath soak, non-toxic lube. Or anything else. Now to today's question. This question's from Lori H. I'm 59, and at this stage of the game, I want hydration, less wrinkles, and more glow. What products do you recommend? 
Oh my God. <laughs> what products don't I recommend? Let's see. Hydration, I think, is the most important. And as we've discussed before, it's important in order to really hydrate your skin, you need to exfoliate it before you moisturize. I'm just going to give you a little routine. I would do the Goop Glow peels once a week, and that'll really get you going on, on exfoliation. And then um, if you find you want more, you can add in, in microderm a couple times a week, but you might be good with that. The most important thing, I think everybody, whether you're 59 or you're 19, try vitamin C first thing in the morning. It's going to really make a difference in how your skin looks. When you talk about glow, you know, it'll really, within a week, you'll, you'll notice a difference in your skin and probably someone who knows you will ask you what you're doing with your skin. So I always recommend vitamin C. Wait a few minutes after you put it in and then go in with hydration. You mentioned less wrinkles. There's, there are many <laughs> great ways to achieve those. Um, my favorites are, I love the Goop Jeans oil and the Goop Jeans face cream, both of which have all these clinical results. I also love Vintner's Daughter's Serum. It's, it's called a serum, but it feels like an oil. And it, you know, it's just got legions of fans for, um, for, for, for just improving skin overall. Then the last thing I'd put on every morning is a new product we have at Goop called Glow Lotion, and it moisturizes and gives you glow, both in the moment. It doesn't make you glowy like, like sheeny. It's a moisturizer, but long-term, it increases your glow. It has a particular different form of vitamin C. It's, not, it's fine to mix those two, and um, it really, uh, like, it's just, it's, it, you know, gives you this dewy, great moisturized feeling, and then you and go all day. And then at night, I'd use a oil-based cleanser. I love Tata Harper, but there are many great ones. And go in with your layering of moisture, like you could, you could do the Vintner's Daughter Serum again, and then maybe go a thicker moisturizer like, um, like the one from Goop Jeans, or there's a great new one from Cora that's a turmeric moisturizer. And there's also, there's a great new one from Tammy Fender. It's a, this thick rose moisturizer and it just feels so good that is a glow routine yeah <laughs> there's a that is, and then i would i'd also take i like fish oil or if you're vegan there are vegan omega supplements i think those can just sort of make a difference in your skin kind of over time that's it for today's episode thanks again for joining us on the goop beauty closet you can learn more about our podcast series at goop.com slash beauty closet podcast if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to other great episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Bye.